Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kindness Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. So one of our greatest hopes here at Kindness Project is that we wouldn't shy away from difficult conversations. Uh, And today's podcast is going to be a difficult conversation. Um, Those are my favorite kind of conversations. They are your favorite. So they're my favorite to have behind closed doors. Like they're my favorite to have in a safe, personal setting where I can say stupid things on accident and then you can correct me. And then I say, oh, that's not actually what I meant. Thank you for having this conversation with me. And this is one of those conversations that we've had a lot just between the two of us. And just the two of us. Yes, thank you. And I have been, in full transparency, I have been a bit fearful of having this conversation in a public space, whether it be through our blog or through a podcast or just in any kind of a public setting. But we want to create a safe space to have these conversations. And if we're not even willing to step into that and have them publicly, then then maybe we're not actually doing what we say we're doing. Um, so today's topic is going to be a difficult one. And what is it? You keep <laughs> you say it's going to be difficult. It's going to be complex. It's going to be what is it? What are we talking about? Yeah. So we're, what we're going to discuss is the conversation around gender identity and sexual orientation. I think though the reason we're having that conversation sort of together is because they often work alongside one another. And so we're going to split this into two podcasts. This podcast is number one, and then our conversation is going to go on so long that we don't want to bore you for one podcast. So we're going to divide it up into two. But essentially, um, both podcasts are going to be gender identity and sexual orientation. All right. Let's hear from our sponsors, and we will get into it. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, we are back. Okay, let's get weird. Let's get into it. Let's let's get awkward. Let's get ourselves canceled. Let's do it. Okay, I I don't like the way that you approach that, but that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> um, so the reason we want to talk about gender identity and sexual orientation is because this is what's happening around us. 
I had read a recent uh, study or poll from Gallup that said one in six Gen Zers identify as LGBTQ. This number is definitely going to continue to rise. Um, Did they but, give uh, previous years? Uh, I didn't note that. No, oh, didn't check. no, uh, but it, I think that because that seems like high one in six because it is i think high. in years previous it, it would have been much lower in, in previous generations well right and so alongside that study they actually did one to encompass multiple generations so 21 percent of gen z identity identify as lgbtq 10.5 percent of millennials identify as lgbtq 4.2 percent of gen x 2.6% of baby boomers. So this is a huge shift in culture. It's a huge shift from generation to generation. Do you think it's a language shift or it's an actual shift in people's affections? That's the difficult part to know. Is it a language shift? Is it now the fact that people feel comfortable to actually express that? Is it, yeah, just people are becoming more open about it and maybe the fact that baby boomers would identify as LGBTQ more commonly. It's just they didn't have a safe place to do that. So I wonder what all is going into that and whether it's just um, whether it's just different language or if it's actually a, an increase in people identifying in these ways. Right. Like if it's that people were already having the same inclinations, but they just didn't have the, the identifying verbiage around it. Or if actual sexual proclivities mm -hmm. are changing on a statistically significant level. Right. I, I, I don't know the Gallup answer to that. didn't tell us that. No. But we're curious. Yes, exactly. Um, so <laughs> all that to be said, this conversation is certainly worth having. And it's one that is affecting our culture. It's affecting the people around us. It's affecting our churches. It's affecting our friends. It's affecting our families. So to decide, and that's not something I want to deal with because it's not something that's I'm encountering in my own identity, I think is rather foolish of us as Christians in general, because if we truly want to um, flip the world upside down, right? Like you, you see that language in Acts a lot, like believers came and they flipped the world upside down. And it's, if we really want to do that, we need to know what's happening in culture. We need to know what's happening in the people with the people around us. And we actually need like a good starting point to introduce the gospel to people. Um, again, this conversation is hard to have in public because you're harshly judged on either side, no matter where you land on this, no matter if you're affirming or not affirming or you're still thinking through terms and trying to understand it, any kind of public conversation I've seen around this topic is judged harshly. And so I'm aware of that and that's hard, but again, it's a conversation that needs to happen. So our goal is not to touch on every layer, to discuss every like unraveling of this because we are talking gender identity and sexual orientation. Those are two big conversations and we're trying to do it in two podcasts. So again, we're not going to talk about everything, um, but we want to think through a biblical framework that we're able to operate within. I think that's our number one goal on the podcast today is, is there a biblical framework? 
If so, what is it? And how do we deal with this complex cultural conversation um, from a biblical perspective? Yeah. And so I think the place we want to start is with, I guess, defining terms, laying the groundwork um, for the kind of the foundations of how to think about uh, sexual orientation, right? Right. So the normative constructs that we are often most familiar with when it comes to... So when you say what we're most from, this is kind of like normative speaking from a, a perspective of the beginning of history up until about 10 years ago. Right. This was normative. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you for clarifying. And we're going to try and do a lot of that because we do want to be mindful of the language we're using. Um, so thank you. Continue to stop me. Um, so the normative up until recently construct of understanding sexual orientation is that it starts with biology there. Um, you are biologically a man who also identifies as a man is sexually attracted to women or you are biologically a woman who identifies as a woman and who is sexually attracted to a man. So check. Yeah. So I think it's important to say like this is the again normative construct that we understood throughout history and now that is changing. Right. That has been the normative in in all civilizations that have survived through the millennia, men get with women, have babies. That's kind of the the normative sexual ethic of marriage is the center of the community, and that marriage is a man, a woman, resulting in children. And that's kind of been that's been the normative understanding of kind of how it all works. Right. And so what's happening now in regards to the conversation is we're seeing a shift obviously in these constructs. So there is now a lot more acceptance and even encouragement for someone to express fluidity when it comes to their sexual orientation and when it comes to their gender identity. So someone might biologically be male, but identify as female and be sexually attracted to both male and female. So we have really these three categories of biologically your sex is what, male or it's female, and then your gender identity, what you feel most comfortable um, expressing yourself to be, could not necessarily be the same as your biology. And then your sexual orientation, that could be something different as well. So there's sex, your biological sex. There is gender identity as well as gender expression. And then there is sexual orientation. So there's three things happening when it comes to your identity, um, but they are now being segmented out or differentiated in a way that I, I don't think we've ever complexly thought through in such a way that our culture is thinking through it now. Right. And in each of those categories, it's the biological sex, the... Uh, the gender expression and then your sexual orientation, there can be any number of almost, you know, the the terms are, are proliferating, you know, with each passing month or year, uh, there can be an infinite number of combinations of how you would identify yourself in, in today's normative sexual ethic. 
Right. And the types of sexuality and gender are no longer understood as being limited by your biology or the even the normative structures, again, normative structures being what was most commonly held to prior to now, um, the normative structures society has operated under for a very long time. Right. And so we're going to kind of look at sexual orientation specifically and really try and understand what is, what are the terms, how are people thinking about their sexual orientation and what is behind this understanding of someone's identity. So in kind of researching this and really looking to understand, I found there were seven seven different types of sexual orientation. Is this a, like an exhaustive list or is this just like kind of the I top, think this top is seven? Kind of, yeah, I think this is sort of the, the foundational understanding and there could be some subgroups that fall underneath these other terms. But these are kind of the, the seven general ways that you could identify your sexual orientation. Got it. So the first one that we have here is aromantic, and that's having little or no romantic attraction to others. Aromantics likely have little to no desire to pursue romantic relationships. Then you have asexual, having little or no sexual attraction to others. Unlike aromantics, asexual folks may want romantic relationships just without the desire for having sex. So a question on the aromantics, does that mean that they can be sexually attracted to someone even if they're not romantically attracted? Or is that just a further uh, kind of expression of the, being asexual? You're, you're not just asexual and not interested in people sexually. You're not interested in romance at all. I think it's a further extension of it. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. So the next one is, we're just going in alphabetical here, bisexual, which is... Uh, Sexual attraction to both men and women, bisexuals mainly keep their range of attraction limited to those two specific categories. Um, demisexual, not experiencing sexual attraction unless there is an emotional connection. Heterosexual, commonly described as being straight. That is when uh, you are one gender and you are attracted to people of the opposite gender. Homosexual is when you're attracted to someone of the same gender. This is... Um, what would is referred to as gay and be uh, lesbian. And so you're, you're attracted to either a man attracted to a man, woman attracted to a woman. And then there's pansexual, the coming from the prefix uh, in the Greek pan, which means all. So pansexuals are people who may feel attracted to people of any gender or gender identity, whether male, female, trans, queer gender, etc. It's just kind of, everything's kind of up for grabs. Right. And, so really, there is freedom to explore your sexual orientation and there's actually encouragement to explore. Like you don't need to define yourself. You can still be figuring it out. There is no shame. There's no parameters. There's no boundaries. Like you can just and, explore your sexuality. And you're speaking right now from the perspective of what is our current yes. social ethic. Yes. 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 So um, in the exploration of your so. In the exploration of your sexual orientation, there's a strong desire to not bind yourself to a label, but for the sake of our conversation, we do think it's helpful to understand the spectrum of sexual orientation. So again, someone who is 
viewing their sexual orientation, they might not necessarily like any of these labels or any of these types, which is fine, of course, but we do think that's helpful as we're having a conversation to identify key terms. Yeah, because as we were researching for this, I found a couple of places where it would say, um, here's definitions for these terms, but whoever identifies with these terms can really define them any way that they want. So, for, but for the sake of conversation, just kind of the, the general ways that, that we can refer uh, to these things in, in a way that kind of helps us wrap our arms around uh, making sense of it. Right. And in this conversation, one of the big questions as we're evaluating it and trying to understand it is whether or not someone's sexual orientation is chosen or not. And we'll discuss that in just a moment. And we're back. So the question is nature versus nurture. Are you born this way, as Lady Gaga would say, or is there something uh, a, a little bit more chosen or even changing about sexual orientation right and so according to american psychological association they would say sexual orientation refers to an enduring pattern of emotional romantic and or sexual attractions to men women or both sexes so the apa also states that these attractions are generally not chosen so sexual orientation is understood as an unchosen capacity or predisposition or predisposition <laughs> clearly can't say that word predisposition for sexual desires toward one or both sexes. There is other research from the APA as well though that while sexual orientation isn't something that uh, is chosen necessarily that doesn't mean that it can't be influenced somehow which right. kind of going back to our question at the top like about the statistics like is the language yeah. is changing or is actual proclivities changing because there's been a, a fair bit of uh, research conducted um by the apa um, peer-reviewed research that says that um, sexual orientation can be influenced by outside factors doesn't mean it always is but mm -hmm. it but it can be it's kind of like nature versus nurture this is a larger question within psychology in general. In general, for all kind of character traits and right. addictions or whatever it is. Is it because you were born that way and so you have that proclivity or is it because you were raised that way, nature versus nurture? Mm -hmm. And the question is almost always both and. Right. It's just a measure of, of – a matter of how much of which. And so mm -hmm. that same thing kind of applies to sexual proclivities, how much of it is inborn. Um, it's tough to say how much of it is influenced. It's just that both of those things are at play. Yeah, that's a really good point to make. And oftentimes Christians, I think, come from the perspective that, well, just change your mind. Like, just change that aspect of who you are and start being attracted to the opposite sex only. And that's really unfair to just make that claim, right? Especially with the research that we've seen, that there is some aspect of it that does involve nature and there's an aspect of it that does involve nurture yeah so that's kind of the groundwork took us like 20 minutes to do the, just like just yeah. defining maybe the this terms. will be three podcasts yeah, maybe. i don't know <laughs> yeah so it so now what we want to do is kind kind of look at is there a biblical framework um where does the biblical framework um fit in with what we see happening in the world today are the things that we can affirm are there things that we ought not to affirm what does the bible kind of say about all of this that we can map onto our 
modern day experience in a way that's faithful. Exactly. You might be shocked that the Bible doesn't actually have any kind of a term that says sexual orientation. That language was definitely not used when scripture was written. It wasn't used culturally. It wasn't understood as anything other than what was happening, right? Yeah. I've actually done some reading on, I don't know if you've read uh, Preston Sprinkle. Um, I think his book is called People to be Loved. That kind of talks about uh, sexual orientation from the biblical first century perspective. And even he goes beyond saying, you know, sexual orientation wasn't a term that was used. Um, he, he argues that in the ancient world, in the time when the biblical text was being written, that wasn't even a concept that they would have had. Like they didn't have the philosophical framework to, for, for like sexual orientation or gender identity. Like mm-hmm. they, they didn't think of themselves as straight or gay or whatever it might be, even in the the times of like um, in, in Greek culture, like um, – where soldiers would sleep with other male soldiers, they would never identify as gay. Um, it, it did, they just didn't have the, the categories to think of those types of things in the way that in a modern sense that we talk about sexual orientation. But just because it didn't have that in terms of categories or language, it, it doesn't mean that we don't have a framework in any kind of sense that we can look to scripture for right correct it's just that they they didn't necessarily think in those terms because there were certainly people who were having non-heterosexual sex right and had non-heterosexual attractions it's just that we kind of have to do a little extra kind of work because the even the concept is something that is a newer concept that we have to kind of adjudicate how it would shows up in scripture mm-hmm. and so where we kind of start is what is the biblical understanding of sex and what is the biblical understandings of humanity in relation to sex. So humans are created as sexual beings. After God created Adam and Eve, he told them, be fruitful and multiply, like go have sex. And so <laughs> like that, <laughs> the it, very first commandment it was of God, the very first thing. And I know we like laugh and it's like funny and, you know, some pastors are like, oh, Eve and, and whatnot. But, Whoa, man. Right. Like those cheesy jokes. <laughs> but really this understanding that as human beings, we were created to be sexual beings. So the idea of sex as a topic is is laid out in scripture it's, from the very beginning. It's kind beginning. of on the first page, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the Bible is constantly reaffirming the framework of sex being between one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. And that's how we see the intention of what God created, that union between man and woman to happen within the confines. Again, the sexual relation aspect, right? Um, To happen within the confines of marriage. And so we can't separate even marriage out and say, okay, sex just means between a man and a woman. Actually, what we see is sex means between a man and a woman within the context of marriage. That's the biblical understanding of the way that God wants us to enjoy our expression of sex, enjoy um, that connection with somebody else. It is within that framework that God had created and instilled in the very beginning 
of Scripture. And this is the way God created the world, and this is the way that he created sexuality itself. And in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, like we can see Jesus go back to the beginning and talk about how God created humanity and how he created sexuality and how he created marriage. And it continues to be this foundation of it is between one man and one woman. And again, one man and one woman. So there are a lot of other ways we can view sexuality. We can view um, marriage. We can view sexual orientation. But the Bible does clearly set this framework that it's not between one man and 50 women. And again, we, we see people doing that in scripture, right? You see King Solomon said that he had like 700 wives. So just because we see other things happening, even in scripture and even within our own culture, doesn't mean that that was the biblical framework or even what God had intended for his people to do. Right, because not everything you see in scripture is prescriptive. It's Some of it is descriptive, and sometimes in the description of it is trying to show you why it's not a good thing to do as shown by the consequences that result from it. Right. So there's a lot of conversation that we can have about sexual orientation um, that and sexual relations that happen outside of the created framework. Um, There are a number of, again, different ways you can look at this, that sexual relations fall outside of the framework of what God um, created it to be. And we can talk about like multiple wives. We can talk about affairs. We can talk about even sex prior to marriage. We can talk about sex, um, sexual relations happening between people of the same gender. Uh, So there are a lot of different ways you can view sex, but the biblical framework that we have to continue to go back to, and it really is a pretty robust case from from Genesis all the way um, to the New Testament, is what God created us to be, the way that he created us to relate to one another sexually, is one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. Right, yeah. And even one thing that I'm thinking about too, like this is probably a rabbit trail that we can maybe go on in this some way, somehow find our way back of even the be fruitful and multiply where bound up in that one, one woman, one man in the context of marriage. It was even that, um, that sex is, uh, inextricably connected with like procreation. And we even see wars being waged, uh, today about that very topic kind of it was more traditionally held among catholics that um procreation and and sex were inextricably connected and that's why they've had historically such an aversion to uh things like uh birth control even um uh non-abortifacient uh contraception is they they've had aversions to that more recently some within the kind of right wing of evangelical circles are questioning whether people should have a right to contraceptives or a right to privacy with regard to to contraceptives even if they're in the context of marriage but kind of all of that has is was is laid out in scripture and has kind of been the foundation of of most societies that have have built around that mm-hmm. yeah i i mean i think that's a good a good rabbit trail right to to even see that the within sex is also the concept of um, procreation, 
But yeah, I think that's another conversation too, is whether that's a mandate that we still have to uphold to. And again, we could probably go long into that. I've emailed somebody back and forth a few times regarding regarding that exact subject. So there's right because I'm just for the record, I'm not anti contraception. Right. I'm just saying like there is a theological connection there and people have interpreted that theological connection in different ways, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it's, it's a part of the the conversation as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And an important part of, of this conversation of sexual orientation, I think is that there's a lot of ways that we've seen culture um, generations and just history, even in biblical history um, of people operating outside of God's created order for sexual orientation, right? So we've seen this happen in a number of different ways. And obviously right now, the key topic that's happening is in regards to um, the various form types of sexual orientation that people are identifying as. But if you even just think about something that was a cultural shift in like the 18th century, um, was at that time, I think there was a law in, oh yes, in Massachusetts, it was a crime um, for anyone to practice fornication. So now Practice that, what? Forn- <laughs> fornication, I think is what you meant to say. <laughs> Did I say fornification? Yeah, for, for, fornication. No, fornication. Uh, no, what so is it like? Pedialyte no, for you. <laughs> what? Or pediasure. Fortica- for, they always talk about for fornication. Pediasure. Fortification. That's the word. Fortification. I don't even know what's happening. To fortify. To f- Let's oh, move on. Oh, this is Let's a disaster. Go. Okay. So in the 18th century, Massachusetts, probably saying that word wrong. Uh, they, it was a crime to fornicate. There you go. Is that better? Yeah. And there are some places where I think, obviously, it's been overruled by Obergefell and those those laws aren't on the, the books anymore. But I think a number of states still have like on the books. Uh, sodomy laws, yes, anti-sodomy laws. They do. And the only reason we bring this up is not to say like we need to go back to that time, but to show that the acceptance of culture or the non-acceptance of culture actually doesn't uh, verify or change what God's intention for anything related to sex is, right? So I think it's pretty insane that anyone would like be criminally charged for fornicating uh and even just some of the other laws that are in in place right now it's it's kind of mind-blowing that that's even a conversation within like the government of how we're going to regulate people's sex so that's a big topic now right like how is the government going to regulate people's sexual i mean people are very concerned yeah yes so all that to be said culture history um biblical history even the approving of or the disapproving of any kind of sexual orientation or section, sexual relations does not change the way that God designed it to be. Right. So now that we have the framework of uh, kind of sexual orientations and how kind of our common culture has defined those things, where do we see how scripture has defined those things. Um, now do we want to move on to kind of the gender identity piece of that? Which again, from the start, we can say there's not really a 
the Bible doesn't speak to it in a very direct way because the concept of gender identity is is new. It is. And before we look at the the biblical framework of gender identity, what I think would be better to start with, because this is something that we've had to do a lot of learning on, is understanding gender identity terms that are being used within our culture in the way that people are defining gender identity. Okay, so gender identity terms. I hope people are taking notes on this because this is a lot to follow. <laughs> just the just the terms that alone are are a lot. You're trying to say that our podcast is a lot. That's rude. <laughs> uh, so. I'll read off a few of the gender identity terms, and there's quite a bit of them, but again, it's helpful as you're having conversations with people um, and really seeing the shift in culture to like set some of this groundwork in your own mind and understand where people are coming from. So in terms of sex, that obviously we used to think like sex was different than than the way that it's identified now. Now, sex very specifically refers to a person's biological status and is typically assigned at birth, usually on the basis of external anatomy. Sex is typically categorized as male, female, or intersex. Gender is often defined as a social construct of norms, behavior, and roles that varies between societies and over time. Gender is often categorized as male, female, or non-binary. Just a non-sequitur uh, anecdote uh, on those two terms where even even those can get confusing. I, I heard this uh, story about uh, an older lady who was talking to her daughter, and she was talking about like, oh, hey, like uh, I recently went to this sex party. And the daughter was like, sex party? What do you – what do you what do you mean sex party like oh yeah this couple over here went to their sex party and they had the the balloons and they they popped the <laughs> balloons you know they see if it's if it's pink or it's blue and she's like oh you mean gender reveal mm-hmm. party so <laughs> but the terms, even the in, terms can cause misunderstandings yeah. if you don't use them right right because even based on the way that i just read these definitions sex party would have been the appropriate term. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that means something completely it different. Does, yeah. Going to a sex party, grandma. Okay. So gender identity uh, is is a person's own internal sense of self and their gender, whether that is man, woman, neither, or both. Unlike gender expression, gender identity is not outwardly visible to others. For most people, gender identity aligns with the sex that they were assigned at birth The American Psychological Association notes for transgender people, gender identity differs in varying degrees from the sex assigned at birth. Um, I hope that (laughs) this isn't getting too confusing, but um, hopefully I'm like... So you have sex, to to say it crudely. Sex, that's the body parts. Biology. Uh, Gender is the social construct of man and woman, Mm -hmm. maleness and femaleness. Gender identity is where you place yourself on that, you know, mm-hmm. now spectrum between male and female, how you self-identify with gender. Yes. Okay. And we got then, that so far. And then there's also gender expression, which is the way that you, like, show people that gender identity is obviously, like, the way that you express it. So this is how someone 
uh, presents their gender outwardly through behavior, clothing, voice, or other perceived characteristics. Yeah, I remember watching this video um, uh, a while back where someone was talking about um, kind of gender fluidity and gender identity, and they were talking about the way gender expresses itself, gender expression as, as opposed to um, gender identity. Mm-hmm. And they said, like, if you sit, you know, here, like with your leg across your knee, uh, that's you're expressing more masculine. But if you kind of cross your leg like this, you're expressing more feminine. So kind of that along with clothing, mm-hmm. style, mm-hmm. different other things, that would fall under gender expression. Yes. Which was interesting because like, I was like, I never thought of uh-huh. m- me folding my legs as being a gendered activity because, you know, depending on how flexible my legs feeling, I might do it one way or the other. (laughs) Well, and the understanding of gender expression is very much tied to the culture and society you're living in. Right. Because what might seem like a female expression here in America could be a male expression in another country. Right. So we got sex, which is the biological reality. We had gender, which is the social construct surrounding the biological reality. You got gender identity. Where do I place myself on that chart? And then gender expression. Now that I've placed myself on that chart, how does that express itself? Is gender expression? Right. And then you have cisgender or just cis. Is that how people... Cis. Cis. Cisgender. Not cis. Okay. Cis. Um, It's an adjective that describes a person whose gender identity aligns with the sex they were assigned at birth. So that would be like me and you. Yes. Like biologically male and female, we identify as such. Uh It's a one-to-one. And then um, I guess sort of the opposite of that, maybe it's not opposite's the right word, but uh, transgender or simply as known as trans is the adjective used to describe someone whose gender identified differs from the sex assigned at birth. So a transgender man, for example, is someone who was listed as a female at birth, but whose gender identity is male. Right. So non-binary is a term that can be used by people who do not describe themselves or their genders as fitting into the categories of man or woman. A range of terms are used to refer to these experiences. Non-binary and genderqueer are among the terms that are sometimes used to describe somebody who doesn't um, identify with either one of the categories. Yeah, so I read that genderqueer can be used sometimes as an umbrella term for people who are not cisgender, um, whereas non-binary is a little bit more specific. Mm. Whereas like genderqueer could could refer to somebody who's transgender – and somebody who's non-binary as an umbrella term. Right. Although some use uh, non-binary and genderqueer as interchangeable. And then some other people, I guess, see that as more of a a politically charged term. Mm -hmm. I guess it's a term that's used more in the political sphere. Um, So that's the difference between genderqueer and uh, non-binary, according to my Google search. Then there's agender. It's an adjective that can describe a person who does not identify as any gender. Which is only a shade different from being non-binary, it seems like. From how I understand it to be, Mm -hmm. yeah. A lot of these are very fine distinctions. They are. Mm -hmm. And then there's gender expansive, 
which is an adjective that can describe someone with a more flexible gender identity uh, that might be associated with a typical gender binary. So a non-binary person can be anywhere on the spectrum, but the implication is that wherever they are on that spectrum is somewhat set. Gender expansive is you can, you yo yo back and bit, forth on the yeah. spectrum, and ha- you have the mm-hmm. ability to do that. Okay. Yes. Uh, so gender identity uh, differs from sexual orientation, right? Insofar as it's a choice of the person. So we talked about earlier when it came to sexual orientation, whether it was nature versus nurture. Gender identity, in a lot of ways, is a choice, especially when you look at that last term that we talked about gender expansive, where someone is kind of floating along um, that line of, of gender identity. Would that be perhaps different for someone who's um, transgender in the traditional sense? Trans, transgender is different, right? Because you have gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm is often what people who um, are transgender are dealing with. So I do think transgender fits in a little bit of a different category um, in yeah, regards to that choice. Yeah, the T is definitely way different from the rest of the letters. Yes. The, yeah. Yeah. So transgender, and there's a lot of mental health issues revolving around transgender because of that gender dysphoria where essentially they're, they were born with um, a certain anatomy that they don't identify with. And so there's really quite the internal struggle of, um, you know, I was born a female, but I, there's nothing about me that feels female. Everything about me feels male. And so that is that gender dysphoria that, um, is, is seen among transgender. Whereas in a lot of cases with this kind of newer expression of gender identity, there perhaps isn't as much of the, the turmoil, but it's more of like a, well, maybe, I don't know what I am, kind of a, is well, it a little bit more kind of just so, ex- explorative than the kind of what we think of transgender from days of old? I think it's explorative and it's also a pushback against the set gender norms. So from the reading that I've done and kind of the way that I understand it to be is, so for example, when I was growing up, there was like a season in life when I felt more engaged in quote unquote male types of expression. So I loved sports and I loved soccer and I loved, didn't like dresses and I didn't want to paint my nails. And so in, in the era of us, it was like, you're a girly girl or you're a tomboy. But I think this new generation is far more nuanced and far more um, contemplative about those things where I wouldn't think one way or another about that, to be honest with you. But now the culture is like, well, why can't I explore that a little bit more? Why can't I think about that? Why can't I actually figure out like, who am I and what are these expressions that I'm like showing to the world? And so for those who are on the range of gender identity, um, with the exception of transgender, I think what's happening is we're really seeing a pushback against the gender classifications and the gender norms that are happening in our culture versus transgender is, is very much something happening, um, like a disconnect within their own body, right? Like you're, you are male, but you're feeling female, um, 
that that seems to be quite a different category that we're talking about gender identity. Got it. That's making sense. Yeah, and it is interesting that you talked about how much of the conversation around gender identity revolves uh, around um, just the social norms of what is considered masculine, what is considered feminine, where even if you are a woman, but you identify with things that are uh, culturally speaking, traditionally kind of masculine, like you enjoy whiskey and steak and you like to you're a really strong leader and you have just a you know a lot of kind of what we would consider masculine energy Mm -hmm. um you you kind of identify with that and say that i'm i'm non-binary in that sense and identify with these masculine parts as part of my identity and it's part of my gender identity is kind of like the way it it's probably like a very like nobody cancel me for like the bad example I use, but just to wrap my mind around the, the idea over here. Yeah. That's, that's the way that I am understanding it though. And I'm again, seeing it more as a pushback against these very clear, like a, B and C makes you a male D E F. Yes. D E F. (laughs) I was like, is that the right order in the alphabet? Uh, (laughs) makes you a female and so people are saying wait I don't I don't really like agree with that thing so then maybe I'm non-binary maybe I just don't want any of those categories and I don't want any of those labels um and I understand the pushback I do because the the categories that our society has put on this is what makes you male this is what makes you female aren't actually true of what people are experiencing themselves to be as a female or as a male. And it's far more rigid than I think people want it to be. People are like, wait, but I'm a girl and I love sports or I'm a girl and I love whiskey or, I mean, you know, I'm just going back to your terrible examples, which I shouldn't be encouraging those <laughs> terrible examples at all. Me. No. So, uh, and maybe we're putting this way too um, simple. Maybe it's not that, um, Maybe it's even far more complex than we're we're understanding it to be. Right, like you, you. I think one time told me an example of when you were in South Africa for a period of a few months that it's not uncommon for male friends who are not mm-hmm. gay, who are not in a romantic relationship or a sexual relationship, that they're just friends for them to hold hands with yes. one another. Which here we would be like that, okay, well then you that means that, that part is, of your identity that's an expression is of, that you have mm-hmm. a different gender expression yes. than uh, what is traditionally male. Whereas over there, like no males do that all the time. So a lot right. of it's like pretty mm-hmm. culturally specific yes. as to what male and female are supposed to do in the social construct of society. Right. And so that adds another layer of just kind of um, I think a, a lot of the reasons why people don't want to broach this conversation, even why we don't want to broach this conversation, just because, I mean, I mean, think fluid is the, the term that mm-hmm. that best expresses, which is a term within the community itself, where it, it a lot of it can feel like you're not exactly sure where the the firm ground to stand on because everything is pretty subjective. Yes. And how I understand the conversation of gender identity is that people are contemplating really the segmentation of their identity as it associates with gender. So um, I might be female by 
way of my sex, my biology, but I identify more with both genders. I identify more with male and female. And, um, and maybe in a certain time, I will have more of a male expression in terms of my gender. And maybe um, there might be a time when I have more of a female expression in my gender. And so again, yeah, it, it's, it's fluidity is kind of the term and, and the encouragement um, within the gender identity conversation. Yeah, it's interesting because when I say fluidity, what I when I'm expressing from what I think a lot of people are expecting from an emotional standpoint is a sense of kind of uh, uncertainty, apprehension, confusion. Um, but from the side of the those advocating for these different gender identities, that's actually something to be. Im- embrace the uncertainty yes. and the the lack of finality because it also allows for freedom there's a lot of freedom in the world of fluidity um if you're encouraged to explore your gender identity because you don't necessarily have to be put into a category and so that's freeing because you're allowed to express whatever it is that you want to express right and you're allowed to even lean into things that Maybe based on those very um, harsh gender categories, you normally wouldn't express because you might think, oh, well, that's that's something that men do, right? And and I'm a woman, so I shouldn't be liking that thing. And again, that's probably a, like, very simple. But um, if there is freedom and there's fluidity, it's like, well, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter that that's what a man does. Like, that's just what I want to do. And that's... And if that means what that I'm kind I want of a man, to explore, then, yeah. mm-hmm. then yeah. if that makes me a little manly, then all right. I guess I have a male expression. Fine. So that it fluidity within the gender identity conversation um, of people who are encouraging that is brings a lot more freedom rather than from the outside looking in. It feels like it brings uncertainty. Yeah. I see a lot of parallels with this and kind of the faith deconstruction movement that's happening yeah. alongside the um, not only sexual revolution, but the gender identity revolution. Unfortunately, we're out of time to talk about it on this episode. And so we're going to end here, but tune in next week and we're going to pick up the conversation right where we left off. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. There's no better way to start your day than spending time in God's Word and in prayer. Don't know where to start? We have a free daily prayer podcast created to help you do just that. The Your Daily Prayer podcast delivers a thoughtful devotional and timely prayer to you seven days a week. Gain inspiration, faith, and encouragement with daily messages in 10 minutes or less. To start listening now, search Your Daily Prayer on your favorite podcast app or visit lifeaudio.com.